Thousands of foreign soldiers have joined the fight against Russian forces. Access to one of the secret training bases for the International Legion in eastern Ukraine. Days after the Russian attack on Severodonetsk that took the life of a second British soldier, thousands of foreigners are still fighting. Here in one of Ukrainian regions, we were given access to one of the secret bases of the foreign legion fighting here in Ukraine. The latest recruits are being welcomed with their commander. And I hope you will stay here to protect Ukraine, to fight for Ukraine, to kill Russian by your rifle. Soldiers from over 50 countries have different motivations for risking their lives. It's not just for Ukraine, it's also for Taiwan because I come here for the independence and the freedom. We are fighting for the, the democracy of this world against a dictator. If I'm alive, I'm going to stay until this war ends. Bakhmut is a hellhole. The bloodiest and longest battle of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and two young Canadian men are among its latest victims. Cole Zelenko of St. Catharines on the left was just 21 and 27-year-old Kyle Porter of Calgary. The two served in Ukraine's International Legion and became friends. They were with Ukrainian troops defending a crucial supply route when they were hit by Russian artillery fire Wednesday and killed. They are the fourth and fifth Canadians to die in combat since Russia's invasion. Our CBC News team met Kyle Porter in Kharkiv last spring. He was volunteering with an urban search and rescue team, pulling victims out of the rubble after Russian rocket attacks. Sounds like this has been a pretty significant experience for you, perhaps even traumatic. War is cruelty. Still, even then, he sounded like there was more for him to do. I'm hoping to come back at some point in a different role. We'll see. Porter was texting with CBC News three days before his death. He had been to Bakhmut before and was anxious. Let me figure out how I'm going to survive the next few days, he wrote. It was a meat grinder the first time. I'm not expecting it any better this time around. the ultimate sacrifice. Calgarian Paul Hughes, who runs a charity in Kharkiv, is helping with efforts to bring Porter's body back from the battlefield. They served uh, and represented Canada in a in in, in the most um, respectful fashion. Um, apparently, they were the most trustworthy. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special episode for you guys for this week's podcast. Uh, my guest is Haruf, and he is a member of the Norman Brigade uh, in Ukraine. Um, we're going to dive into you know, what that is and, and how they got started and uh, sort of what role they played and, and uh, what Haruf's been up to uh, you know, since the invasion. Okay, so Haruf, how's it going, brother? Uh, not bad, not bad. Uh, thank you for having me uh, here with you today. Uh, uh, very honored, and uh, yeah, it's 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 doing as it, as it should be. You know, it's war. Uh, uh, 
that there's not much to say about this. We're we're in big preparation because uh, obviously, as uh, as you've seen before, uh, there there is quite a little bit of op- uh, action and a little bit of escalation right now on different fronts. Uh, so uh, uh, we're we're ready for this at the moment. Okay, so just for the audience, he's currently in Ukraine uh, and he's been there for some time. So, uh, and obviously, you know, there's a lot going on. Um, you know, with with recent events in Ukraine and Russia, you know, the whole situation with Wagner Group um, and, you know, with this this counteroffensive sort of uh, going underway, there's a lot to talk about. Um, and then, you know, we've been in a, a few Twitter spaces with some uh, OSINT uh, Intel type folks, uh, people who are monitoring the situation through satellite imagery, through... Um, you know, monitoring the Russian web, the Belarusian web, uh, you know, so there's just a lot going on. Um, So now the Norman Brigade, I've heard the name before, um, but uh, I I didn't do a bunch of research. Like I have a a general understanding of of what it is, um, but I didn't do a, I didn't want to do a bunch of research uh, knowing that we're going to record because I would rather just have the conversation where you can just sort of tell us. So can you explain what the Norman Brigade is and then maybe, um, you know, what what led you uh, into the conflict yourself? Uh, so the Norman Brigade originally, uh, it was a project uh, that uh, we talked about in 2019 uh, with with the different uh, acquaintances and people that I had served with in the past uh, in the Canadian Army and in in some European armies also. Uh, originally, it was supposed to be more of a humanitarian type of mission where we would be going at the front line and help, I would say, uh, the, the civilian population, but on both sides of the uh, of the front line. Um, and then uh, at the time, I was already involved in Ukraine uh, as, uh, you know, as a normal person uh, uh, since 2017. I was not really conducting, you know, any squirrel, you know, secret squirrel type of mission or anything like that. I was just living my life. I had friends here. Uh, and then uh, I met a, a, a woman uh, here uh, who became my wife. And then we had a beautiful, uh, beautiful kid together. Um, and yeah, this is basically how it started. Um, you know, it, it was very casual and we're talking about this. Uh, and then obviously in 2021, uh, things started to heat up a little bit, as you've seen, uh, build up of troops under the guise of conducting exercises. Uh, but we knew, uh, it's, we knew 100% that it, the shit was going to hit the fan. Um, and then, so I started to ring up the guys, and I was like, "Hey, guys, uh, it's it's gonna go down. I'm not sure when exactly, but it's gonna go down, and it's it, it doesn't make sense, right?" And when reports of uh, Putin moving uh, blood, uh, not not uh, Putin per se, but Putin's army moving blood towards the front line, that was like, "Okay, well, this this is 100. Uh, it's gonna happen." So uh, that when was you just, say blood, you mean just like. Uh, from a, a uh, medical for, side, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm, to, okay. to, uh, for uh, transfusion and, and so on. Uh, that was around December 2021. 
Uh, and at the time, I was talking with Wally uh, also because we're working on an IT project together. Uh, and I said, "Hey, would you like would you like to come uh, give a hand?" It was more for evacuation. It was all about you know, oh, we should probably evacuate the family. But uh, the way the Ukrainians are is they're gonna stick together. So the grandmother couldn't move. So so uh, uh, my 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 wife's mother didn't want to move. Also, so obviously my wife didn't want to move from theirs, and she had the custody uh, of the child. Uh, so I was like, okay, let's go. We're going to fight. We're going to defend basically who we love there, our friends and what we stand for and, and, you know, to stop, uh, these people. And then, um, I had a contact, uh, on, on, I would say probably on the Russian side because I used to serve in the French foreign legion and the French foreign legion is very uh, international. So there were already Russian uh, soldiers there that I knew for five five plus years uh, that were there that had family in Donetsk, that had uh, some connections there. And since 2019, we're trying to talk to them to, to, to convey our project where it would be like, okay, you know, uh, we're going we're gonna to try to help the population on the front line. Uh, can we get, you know, and it guarantees that we're not going to get killed. You know, that, that was the ambiance in 2019. And then uh, just before the invasion, uh, I've talked to a, uh, a contact there and, he, and, and, and he, he said something that pissed me off so bad. And he's a foreign national. He's not even Russian. He's not even, uh, you know, uh, Eastern Ukrainian that wanted to be, uh, uh, you know, part of Ukraine. And so on. He was literally just a foreigner. And he told me, you know, Rolf, uh, if something happens, we will tell you. But uh, there's one thing I can tell you is that your, your, your child would become Russian pretty soon. It pissed me off so bad. Uh, so I called their friends. I'm, I'm not an emotional guy most of the time, but that, that triggered me. So I called the guys and I'm like, okay, guys, we're going to vote. Uh, I'm voting to switch this, this unit into a combat unit. And that was 100% voted for yes. And this is how it started. Uh, so we, we, we've put together, uh, uh, a channel on the encrypted, uh, messaging apps. Uh, and then we started to coordinate with the Brits, with the Americans, uh, with the Canadians, uh, different European, uh, armies. And, and, and we started basically to, to, to coordinate, uh, uh you know, the, the border crossing and to get like the, the logistic going and, and. We, this is pretty much how, how, how it started, I would say. It, it was pretty quick, but we adapted quite well and, and fast. So, so it, you know, it's, it's a fascinating sort of uh, path to how the, the Norman Brigade became this, this combat unit uh, fighting in the war. And, and it's interesting, you know, I've, I've done podcasts with, uh, foreign volunteers who are from Europe but are in Ukraine fighting. And um, from what I can tell, like from Americans that I know who are there or, or other folks, Europeans or, or folks from the Middle East uh, who are fighting there on the Ukrainian side, is some of them went there, you know, with to to do humanitarian work, to evacuate people. Some of them have medical skills. So they said, you know what, we'll, we'll treat people or, or maybe do a little bit of training for, um, for some of the foreign units or, or you know, wherever they're needed. 
And then as time went on and things that they were seeing happening, um, areas would get liberated and they would go into these areas to help medically and, and then hear stories of what was happening uh, to some of these people. Um, and a, a lot of them ended up saying, you know what, I think I'm going to go into like a combat unit and, and get involved in the war. And it's it's really fascinating to see how people from being on the ground and seeing what's happening, how they sort of change their mindset and decide, you know, this is what we're going to do. Um, okay, so then just, you know, before we continue, I just want to go back a little bit. Um, can you just talk about, like, what you were seeing, you know, prior to the full-scale invasion, like, in the East? Like, when you guys were doing humanitarian work, what, what were the things you were seeing? Because, you know, there's a... I guess like the pro-Russian crowd and and Russia itself would say like one of the reasons they invaded full-scale invasion was because the Ukrainians were targeting Ukrainians and Russian speakers in in the Donbass and stuff like that. What were you guys seeing? So so just to clarify, uh, when we placed our request to work on the contact line, the Russian side never answered. Uh, the Ukrainian side was a it, it was a good idea in general, but the Russian side never answered, so we never deployed as a humanitarian group there. Uh, now, okay. since, since I was already in eastern Ukraine, I was, I was uh, uh, already uh, uh, familiar with the area and the people and the families there. I can tell you one thing. Everybody was living in peace. Uh, you know, eastern Ukraine is, is, is Russian-speaking. Right. But but any Russian speaker there also, I've noticed they will speak Sujic. So it's a mix of it's like a, it's it's a mix of old mix of, of the language that they speak in different village. And and there were absolutely no Ukrainians telling to another Ukrainian, oh, you should speak Ukrainian or you should speak Russian. There was none of that, really. Uh, uh, it was relatively peaceful, and if if we look at the statistics, I have also a couple of contacts with the uh, OSCE. It's uh, OSCE. It's uh, uh, the uh, observa- mission of observation from the European Council. Uh, they're very adamant about that. Uh, that you know, towards 2017, 2018, 1920, uh, the, the 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 casualties, especially the civilian casualties, the, the drop drastically. We talk about like 20 people on both sides of the demarcation line that would get killed, uh, you know, by uh, by artillery shells or, or you know, uh, uh, lose from that. That was the reality there. Like the the life started to be quite okay. And again, we. <laughs> You know, we have uh, when you look at the Russian propaganda, especially on Twitter and other social media platforms, um, you see, you know, these people going like, oh, poor Donetsk, you know, we've been bombed for for eight years. And then you have some I don't know if you remember this account, like it's called uh, Troll Story. He posted a, a recent picture of Donetsk where, oh, look at Donetsk, how beautiful it is. And it looks better than than most of the Western cities. And we're we're in 2023, right? Uh, so we're not going to deny that that the Ukrainians are are striking weapons depot or concentrations of troops there. But this whole Donbas thing that we hear, where uh, Ukrainians were were bombarding their population, it is not true. They were targeting uh, 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 
Russian troops and undercover Russian agents uh, that crossed the border and that was, you know, uh, building concentration of troops and and arming people uh, that were not even from Ukraine. and this is the whole reality. This is what people have to to understand. You will always have collateral damage, but most of the time, especially at first, it, it, it was the Russians were bombing on both sides of, of 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 the front line. They were bombing the Ukrainians, and they were bombing the the cities that they were claiming to be Russian, and and obviously they were blaming the Ukrainians. Uh, and and it gave the results we see today, where they just dropped oil on on on, on the fire. So the situation was not, there was no genocide there. There was absolutely nothing. I, I did a, a trip uh, close to Crimea, to the Crimean border. I was literally five kilometers away from the Crimean border by the sea. Uh, so, so, you know, the family could, could spend some, some, some time. Uh, that was in 2020. Nobody was bombing. Nobody was bombing each other. There was absolutely nothing going on there uh, at the time. Now on the eastern front towards Donetsk, obviously you had a sporadic uh, engagement, but it's it it was it was so it like they were key, trying to keep the status quo, you know, in terms of of uh, fighting each other. Like it it dropped. So this is my knowledge of what was going on before the full scale invasion. Yeah, and even um, I had a guy who I. I I'd known for a few years, um, and and I've done two podcasts with him. He's Ukrainian. Uh, he's in the Ukrainian Special Forces uh, in a, a unit that they formed once the invasion began. And but before that, he worked in a special police unit in Kiev. And what he was doing in that unit is guys would commit you know, all kind of sort of violent crime, murder, you know, whatever, smuggling, like whatever it is that they're doing that's a serious crime in Kiev or in, in sort of western parts of Ukraine. And then they would try and run to uh, the east, you know, in, in these areas where there's some skirmishes happening uh, in order to sort of avoid the authorities, uh, the Ukrainian authorities. So the unit oh. that he was in, they would go in just to extract these guys um and and so you know there was like a, a specialized police uh, battalion, I guess. Um, but I, I, if I could recall correctly, I don't want to misspeak, but I, I think they fell under the special operations umbrella. But just as a police force to you know extract these sort of criminals um, who were fleeing the authorities in Kiev uh, and, and and wanted to go to the east where all, all this chaos was happening to to sort of you know disappear or, or hide or whatever. Um, so I, I always find it fascinating to have a conversation with someone and, you know, someone who's pro-Russian and one of their, their reasons for being pro-Russian is, oh, you know, the, the Ukrainians were... I, I, I forget the number they always throw out. I think it's like 6,000 or 8,000 people killed by the Ukrainian government in the Donbass and, and Donetsk and all that. Um, uh, but it's 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 like it's like clockwork. Like once I speak to someone like that, and and some of the things they say, I'm like, oh, this sounds familiar. And then it's it's like you almost know what they're gonna say before they say it, right? Well, it's obviously there's a little bit of propaganda, but if you get the real numbers, 
and and where the source of of these debts come from most of them are are especially at first they were mostly russians like there was already ethnic cleansing there uh in in the occupied territories uh and and but in the rest of the the, the eastern part that was not under russian control it, you know people could could speak you know russian to a ukrainian the ukrainian uh, uh, would could and this and they would understand each other anyway that this is like and the patriotic um essence of these people was was such like they were like okay we speak russian but we we are not russian if 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 they want to be russian they just can go to russia this is our lens right it's the and it's the same thing for uh you know let's say the the uh, the french speaking canadians right uh, at the time when when Canada was was uh, was New France and mainly French speaking, uh, we came from different region. You know, we came from Brittany, we came from Normandy, we came from uh, Ile, Ile, Ile de Paris and Aquitaine and other other areas. But at the time, you know, each areas had their their culture and 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 most of them didn't consider themselves French, right? So I speak. English today? Am I English? I'm not. Uh, I speak French, old version of French. Am I French? No, fuck no. <laughs> Sorry for my <laughs> language. I'm, I'm not French. I'm not French. Uh, it's it's more of an administrative tool to be to, to make sure that we understand each other. But it doesn't make me ethnic French, uh, as the Russians like to to use this uh, this expression. You know, ethnic Russian and ethnic everything. Uh, and and the thing with the Russians is that they weaponize this language, and as soon as you speak it, they they you become Russian, like you are Russian. Yeah. So if you speak Russian, you are Russian in their book, and and you should be part of this big Russian world. And if you try to resist, well, we're gonna genocide the fuck out of you. That this is pretty much their mentality. Uh, so so people must understand their nuance. Where you know you speak English, you're not English, you're American. <laughs> so it's very very simple. Uh, the, so so this is my perspective on 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 this take. Uh, the the uh, the people, uh, as I said, were living very peacefully, and 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 gen- the, the, this genocide that the pro-Russian side tried to claim as uh, uh, you know Ukrainian made. Uh, this is this is not true. It was mainly done by the Russian side. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that is is a little annoying when, uh, you know, when having these conversations with people who are skeptical about, like, you know, what's really happening, you know, did the Ukrainians start it, did the Russians start it, whatever, right? Um, it's like, as you laid out, you know, the Russians will say, oh, these people speak Russian, therefore they are Russian. And they've used that that sort of uh, mentality outwardly to put pressure on European countries that are not Russian per se. Like, like they'll, ha- they'll say, oh, well, there's, a, there's communities of Russians in these countries, and if they get treated unfairly, then we might have to do something to, to fix that. And, uh, you know, they've done it in the Baltics for, uh, you know, decades and generations. Uh, they've done it in Finland. Uh, I mean, there's so many countries that are near Russia that have Russian-speaking communities in it. 
and they they sort of use that as a way to put pressure on the government, um, you know, or, or to threaten or, or to use it as a pretext for an invasion. Um, so it's it's nothing new. If you just uh, learn a little bit of history of the Soviet Union, then you would see this this same playbook is used on repeat over and over and over. And even though you know Russia is no longer the Soviet Union. A lot of the folks who are running the country, Putin included, come from that uh, from that generation of uh, you know uh, ex KGB or uh, guys who who grew up in that time period, and they have some of that mentality. Even if they're not communist or or whatever, they still have that mentality, and and they use those same sort of Soviet playbooks to you know enact their foreign policy. Uh, or you know whatever their strategic objectives are, and and I think we just see it over and over again. Uh, so it, it, that's another thing that just kind of blows my mind. It's like all you have to do is learn a little bit of history, and then you'll start to see the pattern of, of how the Russians do these things. You know. Oh no, exa- exactly. You're totally right, John. And and uh, there's something I'd like to point out. So 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 you, so you know this this whole playbook of you know ethnic Russians uh, uh, being oppressed and other. Uh, in other countries, if you look at history, this is this is the same playbook that led Hitler to annex territories uh, in Poland, in Republic Czech, uh, in Austria, uh, uh, and th- that was the same narrative: all oh, ethnic Germans being oppressed in Poland, being uh, you know um, being in oppressed in Republic Czech, uh, Czech Republic, sorry. And and he would just annex these territories under the same reason that Putin is using to, uh, and and also <laughs> the way uh, the Russians define their history, especially for World War II. Okay, they tend to forget that they started the World War II with the Nazis, like alongside the yeah. Nazis by invading, right? And in their play, in their books, in their history book. They 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 say that the Second World War started in 1941, while in fact the the, the actual World War II started in 1939 with them siding with the Nazis and doing Nazi things in Poland. And they would have gone, they they would have kept doing Nazi things with the Nazis if uh, the Hitler didn't turn down on them, turn around and just be like, okay, we we're, we're gonna smash you. They were happy to genocide the fuck out of this planet alongside the Nazis. And when they were over when they won the victory over the Nazis, since the Germans were claiming to be the master race, where they 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 pronounced themselves as the master race of the Slavic people. So this is why you see the strong ethno-nationalist uh, uh, as aspect in Russia where you know, uh, Rusic is allowed to exist. Rusic is, is is extremely, extremely fascist, and they prone the extermination of of, of the Russians. You have the Russian imperialist movement uh, that you know Navalny uh, uh, was part of and tried to to uh, seduce during his time where he wanted to become president. Um, and they all think the same that you know they they should rule over all the rest of the the. The sub-Slavics, as they call, as they call, you know, the, the Ukrainians uh, uh, and and other Slavic nation and the Baltics especially, and and, and this is it, right? After this World War II victory, no one uh, 
I, I, I think never, no one ever realized how superior they felt over uh, over the, the German master race, I would say. Uh, it's dangerous a little bit to talk about that. You know, I'm, 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 I'm not a fan of that, but I understand what's going on. Like Russia is really an ethno-nationalist state where they prone the, 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 to be the last uh, bastion of the white race. And remember also, this is, this is something that I'd like to point out uh, that people seem to forget in, in Russia. Uh, so everybody is Russian, right? But when you look at the Western part of, of, of Russia, which is mostly, you know, uh, 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 ethnic Russian, they, they call themselves Russian. And the rest of the population, when we talk about Buryat, when we talk about Siberian or Central Asia, that is part of the Russian empire, they call them Ruskis. Mm. So, so if you are Russian, you are, it's, it's already a sign that you are like top Russian, top of the shelf Russian. And if you are Ruski, you are basically just the rest of, of the, the Russian republics in this empire. Uh, so th- th- that's a great point, and I, I it, if I'm thinking about this correctly, I think a lot of the leadership under Putin, I think a lot of them are from St. Petersburg and the, the western part of Russia, right? Including Putin himself. Yes. Yeah. Oh yes, yes. And remember, a Putin b- before he became president, how how he got you know so much power and resources to be able to to run for the presidency is he was moving drugs. And prostitutes in Saint Petersburg with the help of the mafia. Yeah, like because a, because an I, actual gangster, right? Yes, exactly. And and this is the thing, like the banditi at the time, uh, they were, uh, you know, it was very decentralized when the, the Soviet Union collapsed, right? And then they started to put orders, and and there there is an expression where you become kind of, a, kind of like a gangster within the law. So what they did is is they said, okay, uh, if you want to. If you're, you're mafios with Cedar, you become official and then you work in the government for us and we officialize everything for the general population, you know, or we kill you. And this is pretty much what happened. And this is how we gain control. But he kept doing gangster things like he, he was literally controlling the, the, the influx of, of, of drugs and, and, and prostitutes uh, through St. Petersburg. It's, it's 100 percent very uh, uh, real. So. Yeah, it's it's quite remarkable. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, it's quite remarkable. Um, so let's uh, let's pivot a little bit. Um, you know, you you mentioned before, like you know, obviously there was a, a big troop buildup. I think they'd done it before, where they'd sort of had build up and then would recall troops back and just say, "Oh, it's just an exercise." Um, you know, uh, leading up to the invasion, but then. As you said, once they started moving certain medical units up towards the the lines and you know bringing in blood for these transfusions, it, it that's when it's like all right, they're getting ready for action. Um, so you know a lot of things were happening, um, and then where were you or or what was happening? You know, if you don't want to say exactly where you're at, like what was happening uh, and and what was your experience on the day that day? Uh, officially invaded uh, on a full scale <laughs> so so we were trying to close the project with Wally uh, before we left we're like okay we must finish this project we, we were literally at like I don't know 
probably 36 hours of development left on on this uh, uh, on this project and and when it happened uh, I'm like okay we, we gotta start moving so I was in Europe uh, so we did uh, I basically did the, the the preparative I was not in the area where I was living so I had to to, to cross the country uh, like multiple countries to go get my stuff my kit and then we jumped in the vehicle and then we started travel. Uh, it, it, it took uh, quite a little bit of time. <laughs> it took quite a little bit of time to, uh, to do this. And by the 3rd of March, uh, we were already in Ukraine, uh, uh, basically coordinating with our contacts and everything. Uh, I called Wally, said, OK, I'm going to jump in, 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 the, in the plane as soon as I can. Let's meet in Poland. We met in Poland and we crossed the border. And... Uh, uh, the, the, at, at that time, March 3rd, there were still millions of refugees on the roads. It, it, mm. it was insane. So it was th- insane. Was- so just for context, this is about 10 days or 11 days after the, the invasion began. Uh, well, uh, how many days there is in, in February? So, so from the 22nd, so six days, yeah, yeah about, about nine days. Okay. It, it, not even eight days, I would say, uh, you know, to, to put all the things together, to drive back where our material was in in, uh, in Europe and then to, to drive back again in the other direction towards uh, Ukraine. So it, t- it took a little bit of time. Uh, uh, but, yeah, 3rd of March, we're here already. So. And then, um, you know, uh, I mean, we've seen it. On you know video feeds, um, you know pictures. There, there's a, and I guess there's trains that head west, you know, uh, you know out of Kiev or, or or out of the eastern part of the country. Um, so everyone who was fleeing, or or a lot of people who were fleeing, fled west, right? Yeah. So so, so some of them left. Uh, I would like they sorry they they didn't leave the area but they 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 left I would say the direct danger dangerous area and you know people started to aggregate let's say in Dnipro or uh, uh, close to Kiev or you know uh, Krivoy Rog uh, Zaporozhye uh, you know big big urban center this is where they started to aggregate but some people were like okay well most of the population were like, okay, we should probably just just go, you know, towards the western place, you know, towards Lviv, Vinnytsia, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so millions of refugees. Uh, so fr- from the moment that we crossed the border and where we wanted to go, originally it would have taken, I don't know, maybe 16 hours. And it took us 28 hours to reach our destination because there were so many refugees on the roads. Uh, like double, triple lines, and we we're moving with the material, and that was funny because uh, I was I was sitting with Wally in, in in our vehicle, and I'm like, well, I should probably keep fucking 150 meters between these motherfuckers and us, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because because they were moving like like precious material. I was like, oh my god, if they have air superiority and they drop it 300 kilogram bombs on this. This is this is over for us. We're gonna take all <laughs> so so yeah. It was it. it I, I was nervous, uh, really. 
uh, we, we didn't really know what to expect. We didn't know if they had like massive capability like for electronic warfare is what they would be able to to detect i would say uh, uh, foreign numbers or uh, you know uh, uh, you know the uh, they call it like the im uh, so it's like the the actual uh, it's like the serial number of your phone and you can tell basically where it comes from if it was bought like in germany for the german market or the american market and so on so we didn't know if they were able to to detect that and and to start hitting like concentration of of, of uh, f- foreign uh, serial numbers for the phone and everything, so we didn't really know what to expect, to be honest. But we just we just uh, drove uh, deep uh, deep towards the eastern part of of the country. So. Okay, so you guys sort of um, you, you bypassed Kiev and you just kept going to the east. Um, yeah. Now it's you know, it, it the situation is is really interesting. I, I guess from a, a military perspective, uh, and it, it's very different from what Americans are used to from the American wars, uh, you know, around the world and like the the sort of structure of it. Uh, you know, I know foreign units that were um, com- uh, comprised of like ex-American spec ops guys like Rangers and, and Marines and, and special forces and stuff. And they were basically like rotating from front to front and sort of, uh, you know, they would sort of see what's going on in this area and then, uh, you know, speak with local commanders and stuff and figure out how they could fit in and how they can support troops or help or, you know, whatever. Um was it a situation like that where you guys were kind of going where you were needed or did you have like an objective in your mind and, and, and sort of like, we're going to go to this place and, and fight, you know, this front? So, so just before uh, we crossed, I had, a, I was already contacting in what is, you know, plain simply the re- Ukrainian resistance um, in Lviv area. And they said, okay, uh, we will have a vehicle for you in, in, in Poland, and then you will come and then uh, wait a couple of days in Lviv. We'll have equipment for you, weapons, et cetera, et cetera. So we sat for like two or three days in Lviv. Uh, we had the British, Canadians, uh, people in, 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 in an apartment. It was funny a little bit because I was telling the guys, okay, guys, dress in civilian. If you go outside, you dress in civilian, don't. Don't dress in camouflage. Don't don't advertise yourself or any anything like that. And they they didn't listen. They just went out <laughs> uh, with their uniform. And some babushka saw them and they called the the, the SBU. So the SBU came knocking and they, oh, the apartment got raided. So while they're getting raided, <laughs> I'm like that. I'm standing and I start laughing. Really, uh, Wally was like. You know, he, he was he, he was caught in, in 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 the in the room with them, and they pointed like a a, a gun at him. And I was like, guys, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> so I put my passport, and they see Canadian passport, and they're like, what are you doing here? I'm like, look, we came to fight. We're told to wait here for the weapons because we we, we have to go. But apparently, you're gonna arm us, and and uh, we're we're just waiting for 
for orders actually, like a, a, just for development, because I already had a, a another opportunity in Eastern Ukraine. But the guys, like we're not sure how it was going to go if we're going to hit like uh, a zone in, in AO where they would have, like the Russians would have done like a airborne drop. We we didn't know any of that, right? So uh, they're like, oh, okay, okay, well, sorry about that, <laughs> sorry about that. And this is where the guys, you know, we started to be like, okay, well, this is getting ridiculous. So I went for a meeting, I've talked with a, a, a colonel there, and I said, okay, are you willing to give us the weapons or not? He's like, where are you planning to go? I'm like, we're not going towards Kiev, we're going towards the east. We're going to go fight in eastern Ukraine because this is where most of the shit's going to go down. I didn't, I did, I was not even worried about Kiev because when they said, okay, Kiev, the, you know, the population in Kiev, come, anybody, civilian will give you AKs, will give you a helmet and, and, and so on. It, there were like 900,000 people in, in Kiev. That was impossible for the Russians. To, to to fight such at uh, so many people it wasn't possible yeah especially for people with no ex- the, the city to me it didn't make sense why would i go fight there when i know that it's going to go down for real in eastern ukraine so we all came to the same consensus and um, uh, and after a couple of days and all these adventures we 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 so some of them took the train uh, some of them went to kiev uh, because you know they, they're not slaves. If they want to go to Kiev to fight, they can go fight there. And then uh, the rest we met in Eastern Ukraine. Uh, and I had a contact. He was the chief deputy uh, of the actual police force in the whole oblast where we were gonna go. He said, "Hey, come to us. We have weapons. Uh, we're waiting for you. Uh, uh, just come as fast as you can, and then uh, you can come help us." So, so, so this is basically what happened. We just charged headfirst uh, in eastern Ukraine, and we met with uh, uh, local forces uh, that were approved by, uh, I would say, the commander in chief of the Ukrainian armed forces. Um, so, yeah, this is what we did. And uh, just for the audience, um, so Lviv yes. is in in western Ukraine, right? Like, is that on the border with Poland? No, I would say an hour, an hour and a half, not even from from the Polish border. Okay, and so it's like a so a, a nice sort of modern city uh, near the border with Poland, um, and then the SBU—that's the Ukrainian um, intelligence service, right? Yeah, it's more of the civilian side, but obviously they undergo like a military task also. So it's 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 kind of a, the the Ukrainian FBI, if yeah, I would right. say, but they. They are militarized uh, when they have to be militarized. Right. Okay. Um, okay. So then you you guys make it to the 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 Eastern Front. Uh, you know, you link up with uh, Ukrainian armed forces. Um, is your entire team uh, former foreign legion guys, or, or or are they all like former military guys? Like, how does that? What's the layout for that? Uh, mostly, uh, it, it was pretty much international from the Brits, Americans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, there were a couple people that I knew from the French Foreign Legion, but they were, were not in the same uh, uh, regiment anymore. We we knew each other because obviously, you know, kid, there were not a lot of Canadians in the French Foreign Legion. Uh, so um, it was it was a a very dark, I would say, phase 
into uh, I would say into this war because um, some of them that I trusted to help us to improve the the logistic uh, turned out to be uh, to be there either for money or for fame or uh, you know the, the, to f- for profits and especially when it comes from people that you were not expecting that from them uh, it's it's it was a little bit of a shocker um, so yeah it's it's and these people were I, I don't want to give like a, a bad name to the French Foreign Legion because I was part of them also for five years uh, but the, so, so some of these individuals were were not what they claimed to be um, and and they ended up being shit bags uh, so I had to do what I had to do uh, so there was always I would say a constant uh, reshuffling uh, in 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 the command structure, I would say, or in the support structure at the command level, uh, because as you said, you know, some foreigners would would come, uh, they would come fight for like one week, two weeks, and they're like, oh my god, this is too much. Like I should probably get paid for that, and they were just leaving, uh, you know, for the international legion, getting a contract, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Because us, what happened is we're with the Ukrainian Volunteer Army, so it's an arm branch that is. Uh, uh, approved by the commander-in-chief of the uh, U- uh, Ukrainian uh, armed forces, but uh, they they are not part of the armed forces per se. So they fight how they want, they plan their operation like they want, in collaboration with obviously a command and control. So how it works is we are invited on operations, and they say, okay, how can you help us? Like, you know, there is like a, a, a uh, an assessment of risk and where you're you're willing to go. And most of the time, we're we're like, okay, yeah, yeah, let's fucking do this shit. Fucking, <laughs> let's go. We're gonna assault, or you know, we're gonna support you. We're gonna we're gonna raid, or we're gonna go, you know, for reconnaissance behind enemy uh, lines to acquire targets and everything. Like, we're doing like like exactly what a professional army would do, but we were able to refuse if something was stupid. So, so, so that, that was the thing. We're not undergoing uh, uh, suicide missions and, and, and uh, we're not forced to do what, let's say, the Ukrainian army had to do because they were under contract. It, it was very, very interesting and very uh, empowering for us. Uh, because because we didn't have to impose anything on the Ukrainians because we're choosing how we're going to help them, literally. Okay. Um, okay, so then, uh, you know, once you sort of, you know, get situated, uh, you know, as you, as you mentioned, uh, there was some changing. So uh, I guess... I guess in some ways these would be like growing pains, right? Like you, like you got to kind of establish the order of things, you know, how things are going to go. And, uh, from different people I've spoken to, including, you know, what you just uh, said, like in the beginning, there was, there was a period where they kind of had to figure things out and, and, you know, people who shouldn't be there left, um, you know, some people wanted to be internet famous and then they got there and realized like, they're really getting shot at or artillery shells are landing right near them. And so then they left. And so you kind of, the people who aren't supposed to be there sort of get weeded out and then you guys can kind of figure things out and, and, um, you know, get into your rhythm and your groove and, 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 and really start to, to work. Um, 
And then, so how long after you you kind of got situated was it until you guys like were actually getting into contact and and fighting and stuff like that? Uh, two weeks, literally. Two weeks. Um, so, but by by the third by the third week, well. Yeah, to, towards almost like the the fourth week of, of of March, this is where we went on a joint operation with uh, the 81st uh, Air Air Mobile Assault Brigade uh, in Zaporozhye Oblast. Uh, that was it's it's it was at the limit between Donetsk Oblast and Zaporozhye Oblast. Uh, so we're we were operating on 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 both sides of the administrative border of both oblasts. Uh, um, so yeah, this is the yeah, end of end of March that we're already there. Like a little bit before, we're uh, helping in, in planning the, the defense of, of some settlements, and uh, we we started to move into action uh, pretty fast uh, towards the end of March. Yeah. So in that area, <clears throat> were you guys doing like a series of, you know, setting up defensive postures? And 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 repelling Russian attacks, and then going on the offensive. Like, how is that working? Yeah, exactly. So, so we were building defensive positions, obviously uh, uh, battle plans. Uh, you know, mining bridges. Uh, uh, you know, and 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 this is patrolling, making sure we understood. You know, the terrain. You know, all the all the the. the, the this is very important. You have to you have to always. Re- Recce the area, and we're repeating basically the battle plan. That was I was very adamant about this. I said, guys, it's not because uh, you know we're we're the Russians are in front of us that we're not going to go through our battle plans and you know where to walk, you know where to run, where to hide, where to shoot. Uh, this is what we did. We, we recce the whole thing, and then uh, and then uh, probably a week after. Uh, the command was like, "Hey, uh, would you like to to participate into an attack?" Uh, I said, "Yeah, for fuck yeah, for sure." He's like, "Okay, you're gonna have a a meeting. <laughs> you're gonna have a meeting at around, you know, probably tonight, three, four in the morning." And then at six in the morning, they came they they came to get us, uh, me and, and and some other guys, and and I'm like, "Okay, let's go for that meeting." And then, in fact, it was not a meeting; it was literally just the Ukrainians dropping us off. At you know, at the, the gate commander position, and he he looked at us and he's like, "Oh, Bashli." I'm like, "Look, bro, we don't fucking speak Ukrainian or Russian." He's like, "Oh, like jump on, jump on, jump in." So we jump on that BMP and we just assaulted with tanks and 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 BMPs and and they, they call it like Sturming. You know, like uh, uh, storming the uh, the actual settlements that we have mm-hmm. to storm, and and went to like a five hours and a half firefight, you know, uh, with the, the Russians and the Chechens that were there at the time. Okay, and and these these battles, these are taking place in like towns and and like like forest areas. Like, w- what's the terrain like? Uh, so it's it's pretty open. You have like wooden patches, like you have like uh, uh, areas where it's it's slightly uh, wooden, uh, foresty, I would say. Uh, but yeah, it's mainly it's mainly, like it, it transitions totally from like uh, open field to urban combat, and a little bit of of like uh, uh, 
you know, a forest combat per se, I would say, you know, on probably 100 meters or 200 meters. Because the way it's built, you know, you have like three lines, right? And it's a big square, you know, and inside this square, well, you have like empty lands and around this square, you have like three lines and then it's it's constant uh, uh, like squares de- uh, delimited by tree lines. And when you approach some settlements, it, it would become irregular. Yeah? You wouldn't have like a proper forest close to a village or a town and then you would infiltrate there and then you would start uh, storming uh, the actual uh, position. And so at this point, I mean, I know now, uh, you know, all over the front lines, you know, there's trenches built and stuff like that. W- were there trenches in play at, at this point of the war? Oh, then, yeah, they, they had defensive position, but it was it was mostly foxholes that I saw. They, they were not like proper uh, trenches at the time. Uh, it came more in the in 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 the summer uh, of 2022. This is where the the actual trench warfare really started, and and the the front line really stabilized, and and this is where the trench warfare really was was uh, much more predominant. Also with artillery, uh, a lot of artillery. So, and were you guys at that point uh, facing a lot of artillery, or or that was later? Oh no no we like already when we stormed the like the, the Russian artillery was already on us, uh, grads and everything and and I I've watched the drone footage that the uh, Ukrainian come in because they, they they sent what they call like a leleka it's like a in French it's heron heron or something I'm not sure it's like a big big bird with long 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 uh, uh, wings and and. And legs. I'm not sure how we say that in, in, in English, but in Ukrainian it's a lilica. And I saw the the, the, the the drone footage and this shit looked like the moon, maybe. The area where we had infiltrated mm. uh, and some of the positions. You, you know, because everything has to be coordinated, right? It's not only just a group of, of people that goes there with one tank, right? Like a, we had like a detachment of five, six tanks. We have uh, people on our flanks. Uh, we... Like we had like a, a support element, security element, and, and we had to, you know, the way you advance, obviously it has to be coordinated. It's not just like a bunch of, of medieval charges where, or like World War II charges that the, the Russians uh, did, let's say in Bakhmut with Wagner, everything was, was I would say, quite coordinated in, in, in some ways. So sometimes we had to wait, you know, 10, 15 minutes in some areas and we would get targeted by artillery and, we, you know, we had to keep uh, our positions. And then once the other, you know, squad uh, weren't positioned, you know, it's a mutual support type of thing always. So uh, this is what we did. And, and it was fairly, I would say, mid-size. I w- well, I would say it was more of a town, you know, than than a village. And for us to fight there for, you know, five hours and a half, six hours, uh, uh, you advance slowly. Uh, you know, the f- slow is fast, and 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 it's it's hard because obviously they have vehicles. You know, they they they're shooting back at you, brother. You just don't go there. They're not fleeing, especially the Chechens. They they are good fighters, uh, so they 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 tend to to offer quite a, a lot of resistance. But most of the time, this kind of direct action where you would shoot, you know, uh, 
uh, BTR like I did that day, uh, you know, at, at 70, 50 meters, uh, well, 70 meters more because I'd be, uh, I'll, so, uh, if, if 50 meters and, and, and under the, the, the warhead on the RPG will not detonate, it's, it's, it's activated 50 meters and beyond. Uh, so that kind of action, um, it was at that time was rare. Like it, it's, it was, uh, it was always about artillery. It was always about, you know, getting shot by, by tanks and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so the 25 yards action where you would shoot someone, uh, it, it, it's, it doesn't happen often, except if you storm trenches, uh, uh, like we see now today. Yeah. And, and that's a good point. I, I think, um, you know, when people think about the war, like sort of your your sort of normal kind of person who's not involved in anything that would require them to think about these things. Um, or, or you know, I don't know if you saw this, but like there was a there was a time like on Twitter where the sort of pro Russian crowd or or just people who are just like extremely skeptical would say things like, oh, how come I don't see footage of, like, you know, up-close gunfights and stuff like that? And um, it's it's just like when you when you think of a war, you know, if you don't pay attention to these things, then, you know, what what, what do you use as your point of reference, right? It'll, it's like probably a movie or, or several movies that you've seen, right? And, and that's where people sort of go off of. But in, in reality... Uh, there's plenty of engagements that happen at medium to long range, especially when you're talking about artillery and tanks. Like, like you're not just going to, I mean, it may happen, but for the most part, you're not just going to charge, you know, to a tank, you know, with a, with a sort of whatever kind of uh, fighting vehicle that's near it or, you know, uh, so a lot of these engagements happen medium long range. And, uh, you know, when speaking about these things, like how come the foot is, isn't always up close, even though there is footage of that kind of fighting happening. Um, I would always tell people, if you watch documentaries, um, you know, where they interview infantry, American infantry or American Marines uh, who fought in Afghanistan or, 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 you know, wherever, Iraq, you'll see a lot of them say things like, I, or I think this is primarily in Afghanistan, they would say things like, I never actually saw the Taliban or Al-Qaeda. Like, I, I would just get shot at and then return fire from where I thought the fire was coming from. Um, so it's, you know, the experiences, it really depends on the terrain and, and, and you know, how the fighting is, is, is taking place. Um, so did you guys, and it's funny, before you mentioned that, I was going to actually ask about this, but... So for the most part, were you actually seeing the Russians or were you just, you know, seeing tanks and, and stuff like that? No, so, so, so during the, the first engagement, we're, we were seeing the Russians um, very up close. Then this is uh, what happened in, in the first weeks of, of this war. And then after that, it moved towards more uh, uh, shaping operations, you know, stabilizing the front. Uh, as you said, you know, we, we the the front line became stabilized, and then we started to use a lot of drones for for battle space awareness, to acquire intelligence, to acquire targets, to sh shape uh, the battlefield locally, 
because uh, you know we're not thousands of people in in the Norman Brigade. This is this is a myth. Uh, I just want to point out that the, you know Norman Brigade, the brigade is is basically we're thinking about at the end of the war. If we had multiple people would come, maybe since it's a brotherhood, uh, maybe at the end of the you know, the war would have like hundreds, like thousands of people would have been fighting within our ranks. And, and you know, since it's a brotherhood, uh, that would have probably become a brigade, right? But it's, it, it, we never thought about numbers. Uh, so, so yeah, we, we, we really punched above our weight there uh, when it came to, uh, to help uh, uh, shaping the battlefield and, and acquiring intelligence and targets and, and you know, planning operations with the uh, with the Ukrainians, they were they were very respectful because they always asked uh, what we're thinking of, what was doable. Uh, we're bringing you know ideas, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so yeah, w- when it's about shaping operation, you're not necessarily into uh, direct action anymore you're more about controlling the positions controlling the axis of approach uh relaying anything you would observe uh doing counter uh counter patrol and infiltration from the enemy side uh that was mainly uh, the task but still uh, you know sometimes some morning they would attack and obviously uh, we were not the only uh, unit into the area of operation so we're always working in team. Uh, it, it, it always depends, uh, you know, of the situation. I remember in the summer we're, we were chased after by a tank uh, during a reconnaissance uh, operation. We had to set up uh, SPG positions uh, in the gray zone, and we had to, to go up there, recce the actual area to clear it, uh, from uh, uh, from any, any any enemies if we had to, and obviously a, a tank spotted us, but it, it was alone, right? Uh, they didn't really have the time to mount a a counterattack or or a, a QRF to push us out of there, but they they started to shell us with grads, uh, with the thermal barrack uh, weapons, uh, mortars, everything they had, like, you know, from the tanks also, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so obviously I'm, I'm never going to say, oh, you know, I, I just sat there casually eating a fucking ration while they shelled at us. It's, it would be lying. Uh, it's, it's, I'm not, I'm not going to say it's not scary, but, uh, the training you have usually is if you come from a professional army allows you to, 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 uh, uh, to go over that fear of getting hurt or, or to die or, or something like that, or to see your, your guys, uh, getting hurt. Uh, so, so yeah, that, that was the ambiance uh, right there. Um, so in terms of like, um, you know, the casualties and, and guys getting hurt or, or killed, um, were you experiencing a lot of that, you know, guys being wounded or, or killed in the fighting? So, so I witnessed many, many guys getting killed or wounded on the Ukrainian side. Luckily, uh, under my command, I didn't have any casualties. Uh, we lost Joshua Jones and, and Clayton Hightower, uh, two Normans that I've appreciated uh, deeply. 
they were motivated to Americans and, and they died uh, under the command of the International Legion. Uh, Joshua Jones was under the Gur. Uh, we know the story. He stormed. Uh, well, it's not everybody who knows the story, but uh, Joshua Jones from, was from uh, Tennessee. Uh, he was an American volunteer, 24-year-old. Uh, uh, after after some time with the Norman Brigade, uh, he, he, he had basically to feed his family uh, back home, so he had to go back under contract. Uh, and then he joined the Gur, and uh, he, they, they stormed a, a, a Russian trench, and he got mortally wounded. Uh, while they're going the task, so I consider that you know I always considered him a Norman uh, from day one, and then uh, Clayton Hightower uh, was uh, in, if I remember, <sighs> north of the Netsko Blast. Uh, so there were eight guys. Uh, they were acquiring intelligence, launching drones uh, to. You know, doing battle space assessment, et cetera, et cetera. And then the Russians dispatched probably 50 well-trained Russians on their position. They decided to fight. Um, they won, and Hightower got shot in the head uh, because he, he, he was trying to apply first aid on a French soldier uh, that was there, and he and he got shot on the side of the head. So even from from what I remember, he had his helmet, but where he got shot, his helmet didn't uh, uh, didn't protect him. Obviously, a helmet will never protect you from a direct shot from a firearm. Anyways, it's more about you know debris or shrapnel, uh, more type of thing. Uh, so so yeah, um, a lot of former I would say members. Uh, that I consider still members, uh, lost their lives or got wounded uh, when they transferred under contract uh, under different other command. But under under my, well, I would say my command, under Norman Brigade command, uh, we were lucky enough uh, to not sustain casualties, which is a miracle, really. It's a miracle. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, um, you know, you mentioned drones and the sort of the evolution of the role that drones um, are playing in sort of the modern warfare, I think we, we first saw it, well, obviously, in the, in the wars that the U.S. fought, that's when the drones were first implemented. Uh, but these are like, you know, high-tech uh, U.S. military drones. Um, but now what we're seeing in Ukraine, and then what we saw, I guess, initially in, in the battle against ISIS in Syria and Iraq was now military units are using commercially available drones and um, using them for reconnaissance or attaching explosives to it um, and just sort of suicide droning positions, you know, enemy, enemy positions, or... Um, you know, uh, attaching something to it that will allow it to just drop grenades onto positions. Uh, so we first started to see that in the fight against ISIS, and now it's it's very prevalent in Ukraine. Uh, there, there's so much footage of this in different uh, frontline areas. Um, what, what, how did you see the sort of evolution of the role that drones played uh, from a, a standpoint of just doing reconnaissance and getting information and then also, uh, 
using drones to actually attack enemy positions? Uh, so at battalion level, they were using more of the, the you know, the, the military type of drones, uh, you know, like the Lilica and, and, and Bayraktar, etc. Like probably at brigade level for Bayraktar. But at the battalion level, I remember there was mainly Lilica. When it came to, uh, you know, company size or, or platoon size, uh, it was mainly commercial uh, uh, drones. But we saw also uh, custom drones, you know, like the like octocopter, uh, massive, you know, massive uh, drones that could carry, you know, three, four, five, six, uh, 82 millimeter rounds. Uh, we see a panoply of that. At the time, I didn't see much of a kamikaze drone. As I said, it was mainly, uh, you know, for drops, you know, with grenades or mortar rounds or battle space assessment. I didn't get to play with, with the Leleka. But, but, but I've seen like the the, the intelligence uh, gathering that they were doing with this. Now the Russians, uh, they were mainly using the Orlan. Uh, so this thing can fly extremely high. It has quite good capabilities. Uh, when when this thing is up in the air, you want anyway. If you're deployed, you put your phone on plane mode because this thing will act like a a communication tower. So it will ping any phones there, and and if they detect like a, a aggregation uh, concentration of, of of cell phones, well, they would target it right away with with uh, artillery. Um, obviously, the 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 thermal drones also uh, became very very useful, much more than you know the DJI or the the hotel. Now, if you if you look at what's going on, it's it's mainly thermal. Uh, why? Because I would say the, the artillery is, we probably have a little more artillery and artillery shells since the last couple uh, counteroffensive. Uh, Russia became uh, one of the first suppliers for ammunition. Uh, but yeah, when it came to detection, uh, uh, people picked up on, on, on the best material they could have available commercially, especially for thermal drones. So this is what we saw. And then obviously now we see constant, you know, kamikaze drones hitting, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I remember also they were, uh, so, someone that, that I know uh, uh, and other contacts in Ukraine, they, 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 they build what is a cumulative charge. So it, it's basically handmade and you can pierce like, 80 millimeter of armor, so they they were dropping it on tops of tanks. It, it's part of the shipping operations in different areas uh, when you want to, you know, deny capabilities or or if you're going to, uh, you know, to raid, uh, you want to neutralize like important uh, material. So so we've seen like a panoply of, of commercial application, but also uh, the 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 craftsmanship of the Ukrainians. Like building crazy, crazy shit, brother. It, it was it really the, and this is right. They like he, I would say half of the country, you know, had to learn how to to craft something, you know, uh, from their youth to until now. When it comes to repair cars or to, to I, I'm I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna simplify it as like Slavic engineering. So yeah. So this is what we, yeah. Yeah, well, one thing that's sort of, you know, a historical tidbit that's sort of interesting about Ukraine is um, within the Soviet Union itself, 
Ukraine was one of the areas where a lot of the engineering took place or uh, exactly. know, they housed some of the nuclear weapons. Um, so the Ukrainians are, you know, sort of t technically, uh, you know, skilled. And, and, and like you mentioned, these, these sort of there's almost like a, a domestic drone capability that's been born out of this conflict. Um, and it is remarkable to see that for, for people listening, there's probably like a, you know, like a, a few short either documentaries or, or videos where there were some reporters in, in different uh, areas of Ukraine and, and they're sort of watching guys work, uh, modifying drones and, and doing all these things, uh, that it's really quite remarkable, like, um, you know, uh, adding things that can grab stuff or, or drop stuff off. And it's it's really uh, uh, interesting to, to see and, you know, within like all the misery and, and suffering that comes from a war to, to see some of these, uh, these sort of uh, innovations take place. Uh, it's one of the reasons why you know, Russia wants the Ukrainian back because most of the, of the I would say, smart military industrial complex that that was you know what was Soviet Union was basically in Ukraine. You know, they they it's the Ukrainians who who build the rockets and all the satellites and all the components to go in space. While Russia had you know the labor war, the labor force and the resource like the raw resource, and and Ukraine were literally the brains. Uh, and one of the reasons also why the world was scared of the Soviet Union is because of the Ukrainians, incredible warriors, really. Um, I remember, I remember uh, the grandfather, basically, uh, war's father, talking about how when he was in Afghanistan, like they, they, they were calling the Russians fucking faggot because most of the time they, they, they couldn't fight as hard as the Ukrainians. There was already a sense of identity back in the 70s and 80s during that, that war. There, there were already a, a line that was already uh, uh, drawn in the sand when it came to the difference between uh, Ukrainians and, and Russians. So mm, That's interesting. Um, okay, so, uh, you know, so as the conflict goes on uh were you guys primarily operating in the same place or were you bouncing around uh we bounced around a little bit but towards uh towards the end uh, towards the uh, uh, start of the uh, end of springtime and, and the end of summer we were in 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 the same area okay and then uh so obviously there's sort of a a, a uh a counteroffensive taking place now. Uh, there's, you know, what, what I would call it as like probing taking place on different areas. Um, but there was a big sort of counteroffensive push. Uh, I want to say um, maybe like in September, November of 2022, where they, uh, the Ukrainian forces took a bunch of territory back from the Russians. Um, and I think that's when they took uh, Kherson city back. Uh, was around that time. Um, were you guys? Uh, so maybe if you can explain it for the audience, but like the, these counteroffensives, or, or the one that took place at that time, 
the, the Ukrainians took back, uh, I think, thousands of kilometers of territory from the Russians. And there was some uh, maneuvering that took place. Um, they they fainted in one direction. Russians moved their forces, and then they actually made moves in a different direction. And it was successful, uh, but for for these type of operations, uh, the command and control aspect has to be pretty squared away because there's we're talking like thousands of of troops and vehicles that have to coordinate. Um, so when these counteroffensives are taking place. Uh, is it like where you guys are at, you know, this is your role in it? Or are you like, um, if you see an opening, you take it kind of thing? Like, how does that work? Uh, so command and control is there uh, exists for, for one thing, to, to, to not escalate things if things have not to be escalated. So these counteroffensive uh, in Kharkiv Oblast and, and, uh, and uh, Southern uh, uh, Ukraine and, and Kherson, uh, we're not part of that. We're still in Donbass uh, at the time. Uh, I had people that were, um, I would say, dispatching different other units uh, because uh, at the end of summer 2022, well, I would say, yeah, I would say se- September more 2022, we uh, we were requested to move uh, uh under contract uh, for the ZSU, basically, uh, under the Ukrainian Armed Forces. Uh, so while we're uh, uh, arranging the details and, and, and signing contracts, uh, the this counteroffensive uh, took place. So I already had guys who were into the individual contracts in different units, right? But when it came to contracting the unit ourselves, like to, to integrate them into the Ukrainian Armed Forces, uh, at my level, it took... It, it took uh, quite some time. This is a military uh, uh, administration, and we all know how it's slow already in the West. So you can imagine with with the Ukrainians. So we signed a contract in December. Um, we didn't get to deploy with this brigade. We moved to another operational command, uh, and then uh, now we. I would say we still have people in different units, but now we're going to start to re-aggregate and, and re-centralize uh, all the people who wants to come back uh, into this unit. And then uh, we will fight as one again. Thank you. So, so this is the, the situation that has been going on since uh, last December, I would say January, because, because we're still under contract in January uh, as a unit. So, so yeah, this is a situation we didn't take part into this counteroffensive, but multiple Normans in in, on, in individual contract took took uh, action, I would say. And uh, you know, me as a commander, obviously, is to take care of all the uh, politics and administration. Also, beside combat, because when we deployed, I I, I deployed the guys, I fight with them uh, in the field. Uh, so. Right now, obviously, I have guys who constantly ask me, you know, for guidance. Okay, what do you think we should do, or this or that? This is a situation. So I get always like a constant feed of how they're doing. I check on them, uh, mostly, you know, those who want to to uh, to to communicate and and uh, you know keep keep ties uh, alive. And uh, and yeah, so 
this is what's coming uh, for us. It's very positive. It's very positive. We had to reinforce and to strengthen our logistics also, uh, because I'm not a believer of deploying again with, I would say, a very, very minimalistic uh, uh, equipment and logistical support like we did at first. Because when, when we joined the war, you know, we had helmet, uh, uh, bulletproof vest, AK, fucking tubes, grenades, and that's it, you know. And if we had to to have like tank support, tank support that was given by the the actual Ukrainian army unit that were inviting us to fight alongside them, uh, we never owned any tanks uh, at that point. So, so I think logistics now is important. We've been working on that while working on paperwork. Uh, so, yeah, good things are coming. So. Okay. And um, so have you basically been there since uh, it's from March uh, 2022? Yes, we never left. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that that's pretty tough, right? Because, um, I mean, I, I know some volunteers who have spent the majority of the war there I, I think they've done some you know short periods of time where they left ukraine and went home for a little bit and then returned um so you guys been there the whole time um and then well some you, some of the but mainly uh, uh myself and and other close people uh, you know they've been here since the beginning, and they haven't left yet, and they're still fighting, and, and they, you know, they still believe in that cause, and, and it's, you know, we say it's either victory or body back. This is basically where we are. Hmm. Okay. All right. So let's um let's talk a little bit about uh you know what took place uh, very recently uh sort of a, a remarkable event that took place. Uh, started in Ukraine, ended in Russia, and now uh, there's implications for Belarus, um, you know, with Yevgeny Prigozhin, the, the leader of the Wagner Group. Um, so essentially what happened is, you know, he claimed on his official sort of media platforms that the Russian MOD was bombing uh, Wagner positions in the rear, not at the front line, but in the, the rear and that was why, you know, they had to, uh, you know, they had they, they were going to retaliate. So essentially, they they crossed the border into Russia into a city called Rostov-on-Don, uh, which is a, I guess a it's now turned into like a logistical hub, supporting uh, Russian units um, in eastern Ukraine. And uh, they took control of the city. Uh, there was a meeting that Prigozhin had with uh, a, a, a minister from the GRU, the intelligence, uh, military intelligence, and um, uh, another guy who was, a, he was a, a senior guy in the Russian military, and they had this meeting, and, um, you know, Prigozhin's armed, and he's, it's almost like he's kind of talking down to them, and then, you know, they're surrounded by a bunch of uh, Wagner fighters who are armed as well. So basically just sort of showing that they're in control of the, the situation there. And then, so it was a, it was a big mess. Uh, you know, they marched uh, towards Moscow, and they, uh, on this sort of march, uh, they shot down a couple uh, Russian helicopters on, a, a, I think, a command and control aircraft. Um, 
and then they just sort of suddenly turned around and there was some deal that was reached. Uh, so of course, you know, everyone's talking about it. Uh, it's a lot of speculation and, um, you know, what's going to happen. Uh, but what, you know, from the Ukrainian side, uh, you know, what was happening as this situation is unfolding uh, from your perspective? Do you have access to Twitter right now? Yeah. Um, have you seen the post uh, that we've made on June 24th? Uh, hold on, let me take a look. Let's see. One second. Let's see. It's almost like a Joe Rogan moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I kind of made a prediction. Just looking down, let's see. So the picture is, is, uh, is me uh, uh, taping a Ukrainian flag on top of a captured uh, vehicle with another Ukrainian. <laughs> okay, let's see. Ah, uh, yes, I see it. Yeah, June okay. 24th. Okay. Okay. Uh, I see. So, okay. And that's you. And then, so there's one guy with like a, sort of like a camouflage over his helmet. Um, yeah. And then another guy, he's, he doesn't have anything on his head, but his eyes are sort of blacked out. Um, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Oh, so, so this was what, this was a, a Russian military vehicle? Yes. It was a BTR we had captured. But, but look, take a look at that tweet, what I wrote. You want me to read it or like read it out loud or? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I so, guess for the audience, it's probably the best. All right. So, so there's a what you retweeted is on the bottom, and then what you wrote on the 24th on the top. You want me to read what's on the 24th, right? So, I've written uh, for the civil war in Russia. What's going to happen is just Bergozin's going to shake hands. Ah, okay. Turn around. They're gonna they're gonna probably mobilize two hundred thousand people, uh, claiming it's to stop Wagner or or for some reason, and they're just gonna charge back at us. It this is this is my perspective. This is like my that was my take on that before it all unfolded. Okay. Uh, what what basically it allowed them? This is from my perspective. Perspective it allowed them to move these troops. Without, um, I would say they kind of tricked the Ukrainians, uh, you know, because the Ukrainians were like, oh, you know, if they move all together, you know, towards Moscow, we should probably just let them fuck each other up instead of bombing them, right? Or instead of hitting uh, troop concentration. It didn't make sense to me that they would just take control of Rostov. It didn't make sense that they would advance so far without... Uh, Without big actions from the, the Russian government, they didn't kill anybody. They, they, it, it was very, very artificial, very artificial. And the same day, uh, well, I'm not going to say the same day that they marched, but uh, uh, in the following days, Putin signed a national decree that were basically, uh, it was a new bill that was allowing the, the Russian government to conscript uh, the whole 
population of convicts inside Russia. And uh, it allowed them, obviously, to have access to more manpower, but also it kind of created uh, this, this acceptance within the Russian population where they would be like, oh, you know, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's create a fake situation around Wagner so Russia could look like, uh, you know, they, they will have better control over the convicts and, and, and it's best to mobilize them and, and to put them with the Ministry of Defense and, and also to, to be able to replenish their, their new type of assault. They call it like Z-Storm or Storm Z. I'm not, I'm not sure 100%. Uh, and it also allowed them to move them, uh, Wagner to Belarus to give a pretext for Russia to move it to Belarus and create basically this aura of rebellion around Wagner so it could probably be well received by the Belarusian population. Uh, but we all know, in fact, that what's going to happen is they're going to they're going to build up again Wagner. Uh, Wagner, by the way, is still recruiting as usual in Russia. Uh, probably some figures that were that were that that ended up showing themselves as anti-hardcore Putin because they thought it was real. Uh, they probably got ridden of, but there, there's going to be another another round, another phase with Wagner. It's going to come from Belarus. Uh, Belarus. The, this is my opinion. But again, it's not it's not clear. I I I I don't have all the elements, and and obviously it's 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 such a fluid situation where anything can happen. But I saw it right away that it wasn't normal. Uh, Prigozhin, really, if he had rebelled, the 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 way it 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 looks like, like the, the in such a way, he should have been executed. Basically, like the I'm not saying this is what I would have done, but Putin would have never hesitated. Uh, remember, also Wagner is 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 uh, is supported and uh, used as proxies by the Kremlin himself. It's like a personal army of Putin. So this whole Maskirovka, you know, the, the masquerade, the Russian masquerade took a whole level and we saw like, I, I would say some kind of psyops. The, this is my take on that. Yeah. Just to and... allow them to move troops and to mobilize more troops, especially the convict population. This is, this is what happened from my perspective. Yeah, and it's like, you know, uh, Putin has had people killed for less, right? Like, um, you know, people have done some things where they've, you know, offended him in some way or whatever. And, uh, and, and you know, they just sort of fall out of windows or they get poisoned or, or something happens. And, and then yeah, you have this situation. Yeah, then you have this situation where, like, this, this guy who basically Putin elevated to, to the position that he's in, right? Because he... He started out as like a, a caterer, and 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 uh, and he opened up, I guess, restaurants in St. Petersburg, and that, that's how they met. So he goes from being a sort of Russian businessman to, um, you know, commanding a a sort of uh, private army that does the bidding of of the Kremlin, 
and then you know now he's public. Was that? He's is the public figure, uh, right? The, like, yeah, yeah, he's the one who has the money. Is the public figure, but the real, I would say, commander at the tactical strategic level would be Utkin, Dimitri Utkin. Utkin right? Yeah, uh, he's, he's the the one taking really. Uh, care of the, the combat operation and, and all the combat aspects. Uh, Prigozhin obviously is some kind of superstar. He knows how to bring attention on him. He knows how to play the game. Uh, he's smart. Eh? The, the, you know, don't think that uh, he got he got all his billions by just being uh, uh, some kind of slave for Putin. Uh, he's, 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 he's quite uh, educated. Uh, he's dangerous. He's extremely dangerous. And 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 yeah, he draw the he, he draw the attention on on him, and some people uh, uh, you know felt the trick. So yeah, so just for the audience, uh, so he mentioned Utkin, and so that's Dmitry Utkin, and he was the uh, a Russian special forces officer, and uh, the name Wagner or Wagner actually comes from from his side of of this. So uh, Wagner was uh, Hitler's favorite composer. Uh, so, and, and apparently, this guy Utkin is a big fan of the Nazis and Hitler, and and he has he actually has Nazi tattoos on his body, and there's uh, an image of him that's you know circulating the internet uh, showing his tattoos. And um, if so. You know, one of the things I do is OSINT, which is, you know, open source intelligence collection. And uh, whenever we're my my company primarily focuses on China and Russia. And whenever we're doing Russian uh, OSINT, if you look at Wagner's official um, media channels, whether whether that's Telegram or VK or or whatever, uh, they refer to themselves as the orchestra, like almost as a as a nod to. Utkin, and essentially a nod to Wagner, who is the you know this uh, the, the Nazis' favorite uh, guy there. So, uh, and and then he's the the tactical guy, right? He's the former Russian special forces. I, I think they have a a base in Russia. I forget where, uh, but it's co-located with a, a Russian special forces unit. Um, so I, I guess Prigozhin would be the face, and he's the sort of the tactical brains behind, you know, some of the operations or the whole thing. So, yes, yes, correct. Um, so, uh, did you guys ever have any experience with with Wagner or or none? Well, they were manning the artillery in our uh, in our position uh, in our area. Uh, we were facing uh, regular Russian troops uh, towards uh, you know the end of the summer, but uh, we had intel that Wagner was uh, uh, manning all the artillery pieces and and, and grads uh, in the area. Okay. Um, yeah. So I mean, it was just a, a crazy situation. Um, I think most people are like people will have their assessment on, on what they think is happening, but we'll always end it with like, I'm not really sure. You know, I guess we just kind of have to wait and see um, ultimately what happens. Um, OK, so then, uh, you know, there, there's still 
things happening. There was, uh, you know, the like I mentioned, the counteroffensive uh, is sort of underway, and uh, I think it started off a little slow. Um, but from reports that I'm seeing, uh, the counteroffensive, they're, they're starting to make some gains in, in different areas. Uh, I think there was a point where they, they took control of a, a crossing uh, of the... the uh, into the Hurson region, so the Hurson city is, um, and I so I, I made this mistake. If you look at a map of eastern Ukraine, you'll see the Dnipro River, and from looking at the map, west of the Dnipro River is where Hurson city is, and then east is the rest of the Hurson region, and then you know further the, further east is like Crimea and some of these other areas, but. I think the way it's you're supposed to look at it is from uh, north to south. So west would act, would actually be what I thought was east. Um, so so basically, from what I understand, they, they took a, a, a hold of this area, allowing them to push or potentially push further into the into the Kherson region. Um, and and they're sort of making small incremental gains. Um, I know that a, a bunch of these brigades were being trained in, in different NATO countries and returned for the counteroffensive. And from you know different reports I'm seeing online, um, they're only using a fraction of of the brigades that are meant to be used for this counteroffensive. So essentially probing for um, openings and, and seeing you know. And, and then, you know, whatever the, the overall strategy is, obviously, I don't know. But um, is there anything you can say about the counteroffensive uh, or, or is that something you'd rather not talk about? Uh, so, so so this is the thing that the, the, the pieces of information that I have is very localized. Uh, it comes from from uh, some of our guys who are fighting in different directions. Uh, so what really I can tell you on this is that uh, uh, I don't, it, it hasn't really started, um, except I would say, uh, you know, if you look at the map, you could see where they have gained a little bit of ground. But if there is this thing in, in at war where you have to make a choice between exploiting an opening or opportunity or grabbing some land, creating further conditions and, and, and undergoing shaping operations uh, uh, in intelligence work to either lure the enemy into something uh, that we call you know, the giant kill box um, or uh, trying to confuse the enemy, you know, to ch- trying to, to uh, um, I would say tr- it's, it's, Sorry, it's uh, English is not my my first language, but I would say trying to uh, to uh, uh, to run in their their logistical capabilities. Um, meaning, if you send you know troops, you start a fire, you know northern uh, north Ukraine, they they would try to send some reserves there. Logistics has to follow, and then you would probe in another direction while well, you move, you would move other reserves there. And then again, uh, logistic, uh, would, you know, would be activated. And then I, I think there's a massive intelligence war going on 
I'm not going to say much more than that. But what you want is always depleting the logistical capabilities of the enemy, and you must study the enemy in order to understand where they aggregate their ammunition, where they, they, they do this kind of thing, and they have to be in range. And, and for this, you must, uh, you must force the enemy to dispatch troops and logistics for this. So when we talk about probing, it's not only trying to find the weak point, is is trying to understand uh, where they, they aggregate their, their, their logistics so you can destroy it. And then once you have destroyed the, the, this, once you have shaped, you know, on a tactical and strategic, strategic level, this is where you can finish them off. It's, it's better to have different army groups being extremely low on ammunition than having army groups being high on ammunition, but low, low on men where they just could bring like mobics, more, more mobilized men just, you know, to, to fill the gaps and, and. You know, it's this is the mentality, right? You don't want them to have ammunition because even a bad shooter can still kill someone at three, four, five hundred meters. It's it's uh, and most of these men, you know, uh, they were uh, I'm not gonna say conscript, but they have to do like a mandatory military training at some point in their lives. So most of them know how to use a AK. So it's better not to make weapons available to them in the area of operation than just killing them and and. And, and having someone to take their place after with weapons and, and ammunition that we should have destroyed uh, before undergoing a, a, a larger scale operation. Oh, that's that's pretty fascinating, um, and it's 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 interesting. It's clever um, to you know to sort of you know have it to where perhaps the the Russian side is not really sure what to expect. You know, you kind of get into that space where it's like we don't really know what's going to happen from you know from their perspective. Um, so that that's pretty fascinating stuff. And I, I mean, as we've seen, uh, you know, throughout this war, uh, the Ukrainians have been able to uh, accomplish things on the battlefield. Uh, you know, essentially outsmarting the Russians. Um, you know, in, in in tactics and and you know what their objectives are and. Uh, you know, targeting, um, uh, you know, the logistics or, you know, making the logistics situation harder for the tougher for the Russians to resupply troops and stuff. And and it's all fascinating stuff. Um, so if, if anyone listening uh, is, is interested in sort of keeping up with, uh, you know, the Norman Brigade or what you guys have going on uh, online, where can they do that at? Um, so we we use uh, two uh, social media platforms mainly. Uh, one would be Facebook. You can look for Norman Brigade Brigade Normand in French altogether, and we have also a uh, Twitter profile. Well, where I, I interact a little more because I have more time since I'm, I'm taking care of logistics and administration for the unit at the moment. Uh, but we're pretty pretty close from deploying again. Um, you have probably seen uh, uh, a couple of our tweets. So yes, if if people want to follow and keep up with us, uh, they can do it uh, Twitter and Facebook. Okay. And um, is there anything that you know maybe you want to say before we wrap it up? Or uh, 
Well, this is the thing. I'm, I, I, I don't tend to be overly optimistic, especially uh, uh, in this kind of situation. Uh, but I would probably say ju- just believe in us. Uh, I'm not talking about specifically Norman Brigade, but but believe in the cause because uh, uh, being depicted as 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 Nazis, we all know the narrative, right? We know what what hurts. We know uh, you know uh, what people uh, who want to do damage, you know, can spread out there. Uh, this is literally a fight against uh, uh, genocide and, and Russian imperialism, uh, and and. You know, people should probably read a little bit of history, uh, trying to understand, you know, the the the, the creation of the Kievan Rus and what led to the creation of the Russian state, and 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 what is the difference between, you you know, the the Ukrainian people and the Russian people who claim that, you know, they they gave birth to uh, uh, to the Ukrainian culture, where when in fact it's probably the other way around. Uh, the Russians think that the Ukrainians are Russians, but in reality, it's probably some of the Russians uh, who are Ukrainian. So, so please uh, inform yourself. Uh, uh, you should probably try to hear the other side, especially if you are pro-Russian. Try to 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 assess the situation and ask yourself why would you have Canadians and and you know Quebecois or Americans and and other freedom fighters out there literally giving their lives uh, for for real freedom and to stop this genocide why why do you think we do it it's it's not because we believe in hitler most of our families in the past have fought against this evil uh, so i i think you guys have to open your eyes because there is absolutely no way that in 2023 you can justify a genocide and an invasion under the guise that it used to be Russian lands, or that the the the, uh, the you know the 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 government in Ukraine is 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 mainly Nazis, and all of us are Nazis. It's so it's so bullshit. It's it's so. This is what I'm asking to the audience: uh, keep supporting, believe in us, and and keep informing yourself. Look look, look out there for information. And uh, nothing is gray. Not nothing is is sorry. Nothing is black. Nothing is white. It's always in the gray zone. It's it's very important. And I think your podcast helped uh, to have a, a clear understanding of what's going on out there. Yeah, I mean, I I, I try to, you know, um, uh, you know, because I I see where the sort of the pockets of misinformation are, are coming from, and and in many ways, a lot of it is deliberate. Um, yes. Even even right now, uh, there's a two uh, ex-American military guys who uh, work for Russian state media. Uh, I'm not going to say their names to not give them, you know, any any platform. Talking but, about yeah, but they so since the beginning they've been predicting that Russia is going to win like in a month. In another month, you know, and they've basically been wrong about almost everything that they've said from the start. But what? Uh, but the thing is, is they sort of use their their military backgrounds as like, look, I'm an expert. I was a a an officer doing X Y Z in in this American military service, and and this is why, you know, I say the Ukrainians are going to lose, or you know, for example. So, but w- what I'm seeing is a a coordinated effort. Um, from them, from their side, and and obviously, you know, 
they're on payroll of the Russian government because they're working for these Russian state media companies. And and now I'm starting to see a, a very coordinated effort uh, of them going on popular sh- podcasts and shows in America, uh, you know, all within the same couple of weeks. And, and they're just spreading their messages of, of just complete bullshit. Like anyone who who pays attention to the war and then you can just go back and read articles that these guys wrote and, and or tweets or, you know, whatever videos they've done. And it's like, if you're, if you've been wrong about 90% of what you said from the, from February, you know, 2022 to now, um, you know, why should we take you serious? And if you were a, an officer in the armed forces of the, of the United States, why would you be siding with the Russians and working for a, a Russian government entity um, in a in a war where people are fighting for their freedom, you know, the same way that we Americans had to fight for our freedom? Um, so, you know, just something to keep in mind. And, and you know, I, I really appreciate your perspective. Um, when I first had the idea to get you on, we were on a Twitter space and we were talking about the, the Nazi situation and um, once you, uh, I spoke, and then you spoke, and then once you finished speaking, I, I knew you were pretty squared away uh, by what you said. Um, so I, I really appreciate you coming on here. Um, you know, I, I hope the audience can use this to, uh, you know, to to further do some investigations and, and understanding, you know, this conflict and and why it's happening and and uh, you know w- what's actually happening versus like people just saying, oh, the Ukrainians are going to lose, the Russians are going to win in a month, and, and just continuing that cycle uh, over and over. So I really appreciate you coming on here and, and, and every all the work that you're doing. Um, it, it's super important. So, again, appreciate it. And then, you know, maybe sometime in the future we can have you back on. It's going to be a pleasure, John. Uh, th- thank you for, for giving me a voice. Uh, I think it's important that you know, people understand also uh, what's going on from a fighter's perspective. Uh, uh, and yeah, keep up the good work. I like your style already. I know. I so it's kind of our first. <laughs> it's our first game together. I would say like uh, yeah. uh, our, our first hockey game. <laughs> so, um, uh, and then this is right since since I don't really speak English uh, as a, as a native language. It's uh, I'm kind of a little bit embarrassed because I I cannot really convey all the depth of my thoughts in general, but I, I, mm-hmm. I will probably get the better uh, in, in probably uh, other interviews uh, when I when I will have a break, uh, hopefully in uh, two, three months, hopefully. So a- anytime, uh, just let me know when you want me to come on and if, uh, if I have time, I'll show up. <laughs>